But China is not the Soviet Union 2.0. And we were talking earlier about the the use or, or lack thereof of metaphors and analogies. And I, I worry that the, the growing tendency to analogize China to an overarching uh, sort of unalloyed antagonist threatens to obscure more than clarify. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Producer Kevin Nodell is still in the Middle East, but we'll be hearing from him soon. Thinking about geopolitics is all about picking the right metaphor. After World War II, America's elite conceived of a world engaged in a Cold War, where the United States and Soviet Union played a game of spies and skirmishes to spread political ideology across the planet. In the 19th century, the British and Russian empires engaged in the great game, political and diplomatic game of shadows that played out in Afghanistan and its neighboring territories. But the problem with metaphors is that the map is not the territory. The menu is not the meal, and if you get caught up in a great power competition, say, it can be hard to see the way the world really works, or see the world any other way. Here to help us sort through this and try to figure out what metaphors best fit our troubled times is Lee Wine. He's a policy analyst at RAND, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Snowcroft Center on International Security, and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. His work, especially on this topic, has appeared in the national interest. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. Okay, so let's define some some terms and really explain the metaphor that we're going to be talking about today, which is the great power competition, right? So what is this great power competition? Who are the great powers? And what does it mean for those powers to see themselves this way? So my understanding of great power competition, first in terms of the origins. So if you look at the national security strategy and the national defense strategy put out by by the White House, the the impetus for shifting to great power competition and, and an impetus that I would say is is widely shared across ideological lines is that the United States for too long, going on two decades now, has been preoccupied with convulsions in the Middle East. Uh, particularly the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, but also more broadly uh, what some have called a global war on terrorism that while centered in or centered on the Middle East uh, is uh, continues to expand in geographical reach. And so the impetus for shifting to great power competition is one, uh, a conviction, which I, I think is is right, that the United States has been preoccupied with counterterrorism for too long, or at least has accorded counterterrorism too high a strategic priority for quite some time and that in light of a resurgent China and a revanchist Russia that we need to focus on more traditional great power competition. And so going to the the second part of your question, at least if you look at the the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, and I think it's fair to say if you look at most of the commentary on great power competition, the two great powers that are the principal protagonists or antagonists in this competition, depending on your perspective, are China and Russia. So Russia, uh, you know, Russia certainly is a pale shadow of its former self, its former imperial self, but it nonetheless is a major power. It has the world's largest arsenal of nuclear weapons. 
It has veto power on the United Nations Security Council. It has the world's largest landmass. And although Russia faces a bleak demographic outlook and it faces declining coercive energy leverage, it nonetheless is a formidable power. And I think that Russia has concluded that while it doesn't have the economic wherewithal to offer something in the vein of a Belt and Road Initiative like China does, uh, it nonetheless feels that it can remind the international community of its great power status and great power influence by upsetting the apple cart. And so if you look at, at various Russian efforts, whether it is hiving off territories in its near abroad, conducting disinformation operations to destabilize democratic societies, uh, supporting the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, there isn't necessarily a grand strategic arc that connects those different uh, vectors of effort. But if you recognize that Russia is, is thinking less in grand strategic terms and more in tactical terms, and here I think we need to distinguish between tactical agility, which which Putin has demonstrated amply, and strategic foresight, which I feel that he has demonstrated less of, uh, you see that, that Russia, through these uh, through its tactical agility, has been able to remind the international community of its influence. And in China, on the other hand, I see China as a selective revisionist. It is a rapidly resurgent power, particularly in the, in the domains of economics and technology, but also militarily and even ideologically. And I see China as a power that it doesn't necessarily seek to displace the United States as the undergirder of a global order, but it does see itself as pursuing a more ambitious foreign policy of restoring uh, a certain degree of preeminence that it once enjoyed in the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and, I, and I do think that it can plausibly envision with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Belt and Road Initiative and the like. I do think that China can plausibly envision uh, in decades to come the establishment of a somewhat unified Eurasian economic zone at which it sits at the center. So in any event, so I think the great power competition is trying to shift away from Counterterrorism. It's trying to restore our strategic focus on great powers. In this case, China and Russia. And 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 we may. I'm sure we'll get into this later in the conversation. Um, it is interesting that because the NSS and the NDS they place China and Russia. In, they often place them in immediate juxtaposition. It's interesting to think about how we define great powers. I mean, China and Russia are countries that have. Very different uh, economic capacities, very different military capacities, very different strategies. And the economic imbalance in particular between China and Russia is growing apace. It's growing more lopsided in China's favor. So it's it's interesting to think about how the the U.S. policymaking community and analytical community define great power. But why don't I leave it there? Because I, I, I do have a propensity to ramble. So why don't I leave it there? Well, no, I think that that's a really interesting question. Um, I would argue that it's... Russia is part of what Russia does now is argue for itself as a great power. You know, if we want mm -hmm. to keep this metaphor going and like you said, it does still have nukes and it is willing to use a new form of soft power that I think it's pioneered through the internet. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these, these, these border skirmishes, if I want to call them that, which is maybe not the right term to, prove to its to itself and the people around it that it is still a global player. Mm -hmm. Right. So is there a downside to seeing the world this way? Is this how America should be conducting itself? Is this all a competition? Well, so those are all, those are all really important questions and questions that I, I've been grappling with in recent months. And I think 
at least as I attend events around town and, and read the literature on great power competition, I feel that these the questions that you posed are taking on a heightened urgency. My concern is that there seems to be not only a marked gap between the prescriptive momentum that great power competition has generated and the I think the, the comparative lack of analytical rigor that informs the construct, but also that that gap is growing at an accelerating pace. Uh, and that is to say, when you it, it's it's virtually axiomatic now to state in Washington that we have entered a new era of great power competition, and that competition has become and that competition has become the defining strategic imperative of our time. But there are several questions that present that present themselves, and and you you broached many of them. First, who is our principal competitor? I think most observers would say China, but nonetheless, we do tend to in the analytic community we we do tend to refer to China and Russia often in immediate juxtaposition when talking about great power competition, even though, as I suggested earlier, these are two countries that have very different material capacities, very different strategies, very different geopolitical strategies for advancing their national interests. And I, and I, I would suspect very different long-term ambitions. I think that Russia, Russia's long-term ambitions, to the extent that one can discern them, they revolve less around becoming a, a truly global power and more about upsetting the apple cart, uh, consolidating power in its near abroad. But they're more limited, more limited objectives, whereas I do think that China's objectives are much more global, global in scale. So the, the first question is, who is our principal competitor? Uh, two, what is what is America's long term objective in conducting great power competition? Uh, what are what are some plausible end states or steady states for great power competition? And the answers would seem or the answer or answers would seem to be self-evident. So if you ask people what is America's goal in competing with with China and or Russia, uh, most observers would say that its objective is to stay number one or to maintain preeminence and or primacy or at a minimum to maintain a favorable global balance of power. And again, those answers, they seem self-evident, and I suspect that they would command pretty widespread traction across the ideological spectrum. But if you start interrogating those those end states or steady states a bit more, you recognize that they are their meanings are quite fuzzy. And I I would regard them less as less as clearly defined end states than as kind of abstract aspirations. So take, for example, staying number one. How do we define number one? Uh, what metrics do we use? And to take one metric that a lot of people often cite is absolute uh, absolute economic size or gross domestic product. And so China, along current trend lines, despite its despite the deceleration in its growth and despite some of the economic headwinds that it's facing, it's it's likely that China in the in the not too distant future will overtake America in absolute economic size. But would that would that changing of the economic guards make China into a global superpower? Would it make China number one? I'm not so sure. And we just need to look at recent history to see why we should be skeptical of that type of proposition. So if you look at the power transition between the United Kingdom and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, the United States had actually overtaken Britain in industrial, in absolute industrial heft and absolute economic size by the late 19th century. So, and depending on which which historians you consult and which metrics you use. Some some observers would say that that transition occurred in the 1870s. Other 
Others would say in the 1880s or 1890s. But regardless, the United States had become the world's largest economy in the late 19th century. But it didn't actually become the world's preeminent power. I think if you look at most historians' assessments, it didn't become the world's preeminent power until after the Second World War. And even then, it became the world's preeminent power less by design than by default. And that is to say that uh, at the end of the Second World War, uh, much of Europe lay in ruins, much of Asia lay in ruins. And so the United States, de facto, because it relatively had suffered less damage than than Europe or Asia during that conflict, it became present at the creation. And it had a singular opportunity and was kind of thrust into this opportunity to fashion what we now call the post-war order. And so that is to say that there's there's often a gap between uh, absolute achieving uh, preeminence in absolute economic terms and becoming a global power. So so the question that I have when we think about these goals of staying number one, maintaining primacy, maintaining favorable balance of power, we need to be much clearer about how we define those abstractions, how we concretize those abstractions. And my sense is that uh, and I'm, I'm just hypothesizing here, speculating. I haven't actually done this this experiment, but I wouldn't be surprised if you were to if you if you were to assemble a a group of 20 sort of 20 strategic luminaries, convene them around a round table in Washington and say, what should the objective of great power competition be? Uh, even if all 20 of them agreed on the abstraction, say, staying number one or maintaining preeminence, I suspect that they would one, they would have very different understandings of what that abstraction actually entailed. And they might even they might also have different criteria for how to define it. So that's the second question is with these plausible or 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 sort of intuitive steady states or end states, how do we define them and what criteria do we use? Number three, um, if there isn't an end state or if there isn't a steady state, and there are, and there are some of the observers who argue that particularly vis-a-vis China, we aren't, we aren't entering a, a competition that has, that is neatly circumscribed. We are headed for a multifaceted long-term competition without any without any apparent end in sight. Essentially, we're preparing for infinite competition. And if we are preparing for infinite competition, we need to be very candid with the American public, because it's not clear to me that the American public uh, either has countenanced infinite competition with an economic competitor, the likes of which the likes of which we've never seen before. It's also not clear to me that the American public would be willing to make uh, the requisite uh, sacrifices. It's also not clear to me that American society is structured in a way that would be conducive to infinite competition. So those are some of the, so those are some of the questions that I have. And I, my, my, my modest plea, but I think one that I, I feel uh, an exhortation that I feel like giving more and more urgently is if we are indeed embarking on a new era of great power competition, we need to define the term much more rigorously. We need to be much clearer about where we want to go. We need to be much clearer about whether we actually can achieve certain steady states or end states. And we need to have a much more candid conversation with the public about what a new era of infinite or indefinite great power competition would look like so that we can get them on board. What do you think the the end of that struck me? What do you think that the effect of a long term or infinite competition would be on the public? It's I mean, the signs are not it's. It's hard to say, and the the American public, you know, throughout history has demonstrated that when it is called upon, that it is it is willing to make sacrifices and willing to make investments to prepare for those types of competitions. If you look at if you look at American history, just in terms of our 
our struggle against uh, fascist Japan or Nazi Germany, and particularly in the Soviet Union, it's not that the United States lacks the capacity to mobilize public opinion and mobilize the American public to to steal for long-term conflicts or competitions, but I do think that that I do get the sense that that patience has diminished, uh, particularly uh, in 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 this century. I think that there is less of a patience for long-term competitions. I think that the public largely is war-weary. We've seen the war in Iraq now going on for uh, over 15 years. The war in Afghanistan is approaching 20 years. And we haven't seen, we meaning the American public, we haven't really seen concrete uh, strategic dividends. Uh, we have, we've hemorrhaged a tremendous, we've hemorrhaged trillions of dollars in these conflicts. Uh, it's not clear that we've accrued strategic dividends in the process. We've lost thousands of American soldiers. The Middle East seems to seems to devolve into ever further instability. And so I do think the American public is is questioning the 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 prudence of long term conflicts and or competition. So one, I'm not clear if we're if we're ready. Uh, and number two. We're not prepared for this for this particular type of competition. Uh, and, and I often think of a speech that George Kennan gave on the occasion of his 90th birthday uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations. So he gave a speech in 1994 and he was asked the council asked him to reflect on containment. How well had the construct held up analytically and prescriptively? And he issued a warning in 1994 that that I would say roughly 30 years later uh, proved to be quite prescient. But his warning was kind of drowned out, or at least it didn't get received the attention that I think it deserved. Because in 19 in the in the early 1990s we were in the kind of in the peak phase of post Cold War triumphalism. But but Kennan warned that uh, for the past 60 years, so dating to the 1930s, he said that America's foreign policy energy had largely been preoccupied with and absorbed by dealing with real and or perceived overriding singular existential challenges. So again, Japan, Germany, the Soviet Union. And so he said that with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, while the United States won a tremendous victory, uh, it lost an orienting foreign policy ballast. And I think that in that strategic sense, we haven't quote unquote, recovered from the uh, we haven't recovered from the absence of a of a comparably orienting ballast. Now, some observers would argue that the China should the China fits the bill, that China should be that external orienting competitor. But but China is not the Soviet Union 2.0. And we were talking earlier about the the use or, or lack thereof of metaphors and analogies. And I, I worry that the the growing analogy or the growing tendency to analogize China to an overarching uh, sort of unalloyed antagonist tends to obscure or, or tend, it, it threatens to obscure more than clarify. While it is true that the United States is engaging in an increasingly competitive struggle with 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 China in a range of domains, uh, the United States and China, they maintain very robust economic and cultural linkages that really didn't exist between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, where the Soviet Union was largely quarantined and, and deliberately so from the U.S. led post or order. China has been one of the principal beneficiaries of that, of integrating itself into that order, particularly over the past four decades. And while it seeks to chip away at certain aspects of that system, that it often laments that it didn't play a role in designing, it nonetheless is a more of a selective revisionist because, again, it's benefited immensely by having integrated itself into that system. Uh, in the Cold War, uh, unless you were an explicitly non-aligned country such as India, it would have been very difficult for, for most countries to simultaneously uh, 
engage in business with the, with the Americans or the Soviets. Uh, you either chose ideologically um, or you had a side imposed on you by the United States or the Soviet Union. Today, middle countries seek to maximize their freedom of strategic maneuver. They don't want to have to choose between greater security and diplomatic ties with the United States on the one hand and greater commercial and investment ties with China on the other. So there are a lot of differences between uh, uh, China today and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And also, uh, as much as the United States and, and China might not want to admit as much, um, there are very few issues, there are very few pressing issues of world order that can be meaningfully addressed without robust uh, Sino-U.S. cooperation. So there are a lot of differences. And I think, and this is why I would say that when I think about competition with China, if indeed we are engaging in indefinite competition, I think we need to think less about how we out-China China and more about how we can become a more dynamic version of our best self. What are America's unique singular competitive advantages, whether it is our openness to people and ideas from around the world, whether it is our system of higher education, our ecosystem of innovation, our network of alliances. I think that the United States will be far more competitively uh, uh, poised for the long term if it focuses more on swimming its own race, as it were, than on trying to replicate every one of China's pronouncements and actions. So those are, I, I recognize, kind of a, a smattering of, of somewhat disparate thoughts, but they but they but they reflect my overall conviction and my growing conviction that we need to be thinking more about playing our own game rather than trying to beat China at its own game. Do you like this metaphor or are you just resigned to it? The metaphor of the, the Cold War? Of the great of the great power competition. It superficially makes sense. And, and I, I want to I don't want to or I would be remiss to disclaim the the construct entirely. I mean, as as I as I said at the beginning, Competition is growing, undoubtedly, and uh, and I say particularly with China that some of our uh, some of the the hopes and or assumptions that that had undergirded America's policy towards China for the better part of 40 years have proven to be unfounded, or at least much more dubious than we had had believed. In particular, I think that Republicans and Democrats, uh, from Nixon to from President Nixon to President Obama, had hoped or had concluded. That as China grew more prosperous, as it grew more integrated into the global order, and particularly the global economic order, and that as it's as it achieved greater economic interdependence with the United States, that those forces, those economic forces, would temper some of its illiberalism at home. But but we've seen that China, if anything, it continues to grow more prosperous, but it also continues to grow more authoritarian, especially under Xi Jinping. Um, So we are. More competitive with with China economically, there is a growing element of military competition, a growing element of ideological competition. Uh, our relationship with Russia, unfortunately, continues to deteriorate, and there are more and more competitive elements. So I'm not I'm not entirely disclaiming the the, the construct. I think my my plea is just to make it more. So, so on the one hand, I'm not disclaiming the construct entirely. I I do have a certain sense of resignation that it is now. The animated construct. If I had to pick one construct that really grounds foreign policy conversations in Washington more than any other, it would be great power competition. So if if we have resigned ourselves to that construct and if it is the construct that that is going to define how we conduct our foreign policy and how we formulate our grand strategy for not just the near future, but presumably for the long haul, then we need to think about it very seriously. We need to interrogate it. We need to ask what assumptions we're making about 
American power and American influence. Um, we need so, so there's there's several stipulations that I would attach if we are if we are indeed resigned to this construct. Uh, one, we need to we need to appreciate the limits to American power and influence, uh, and particularly our ability to refashion and often recalcitrant world in America's image. I think that the uh, I, I think that America's post-war history demonstrates that even the world's preeminent power faces very sharp limits in terms of reconfiguring societies internally or compelling them to refashion themselves in our image. So one, we need to appreciate the limits to our power and influence. We need to be more uh, uncompromising and more rigorous in terms of distinguishing between our vital national interests and secondary national interests. We need to be more uncompromising and rigorous in terms of distinguishing between what one might call the the core of the post-war order and the periphery of the post-war order. Uh, we need to think about where it is that we want to go. Uh, there's that there's that quip that's uh, allegedly attributed to Yogi Berra. And he says that if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And so we need to be mindful that uh, competition is not a strategy. Competition is a means. It's an instrument, but it's not a strategy. Uh, And the risk is that if competition becomes an imperative unto itself or in and of itself, and it's untethered from or only loosely tethered to an end state and or steady state, there's a risk that we we run the risk of strategic disorientation and, and potentially even exhaustion. Now, the good news, but also the bad news, it's, a, it's sort of a, a yin and a yang. Uh, because the United States is so powerful and influential, arguably more powerful and influential than any other single actor in human history, the United States has the uh, the luxury, you could say, to elide the necessity for prioritization for a far longer period of time than any other country. But even the United States eventually will confront that that choice. And we need to think about when we do confront those choices. And I would rather I would rather that we make those choices proactively or those priorities proactively rather than having those priorities imposed upon us, whether by uh, whether by our fiscal situation, whether by emerging strategic realities or whatnot. But we need to think more clearly about where we're going. We need to think and we also need to think and and, and this this proposition, I would say, will, will be quite testing for the American psyche. But we do need to think about. Whether we are more focused sort of myopically on maintaining America as number one, whatever that designation entails, or whether we are more focused on building a more resilient order in which America might relatively play a smaller role. Uh, I I think that it's now some people might say that uh, sustaining America, sustaining America as number one and modernizing the post-war order or strengthening this so-called liberal international order are one and the same. But I, I would make the argument that if we want a post-war order that is more adaptive, more nimble, more resilient, uh, we will have to make greater accommodations for a research in China. We will have to to give Russia a certain seat at the table, and we will consequently and necessarily have to accept a relative diminution in our power and influence uh, for the sake of a more modern order. So we have very serious choices in front of us, whether it comes to what threats we prioritize, what geographic theaters we prioritize, what long term objectives we seek. And if great power competition is going to be the defining construct for our conversations. And again, I, as I said in our conversation, I, I have my own reservations about the the prudence and the granularity of the construct. But if it is to be the, the construct du jour that animates and grounds our conversations, then then I would put out a plea for us to think far more granularly about it. There's no dream at the end of this, right? 
it really feels like to me right now, you know, just as an observer, that it is kind of, as you said, just about making sure that we don't lose anything. And that is not always the best place to be operating from. Uh, do we have any idea what, how China and Russia conceive of the world? Or do they see themselves as engaging in great power competitions? I think they definitely do. And I think that they both do, although there are, I think that the differences between China and Russia are, are far greater in number and significance and the similarity. So is it true that is the China Russia relationship becoming more robust? Undoubtedly. Uh, and it's a relationship that's becoming more robust across the full range of dimensions, uh, military, economic and diplomatic. But it's a relationship. And, and it, this is a paradox that I, I think is sometimes understated in, in mainstream assessments of the Sino Russian relationship. It's a relationship that is simultaneously becoming more robust and more asymmetric and more asymmetric in China's favor. Uh, the, if you look at not only the extant economic gap, between China and Russia, but also the gap between their uh, their growth rates, their respective growth rates. Uh, this is a relationship that is growing rapidly more asymmetric. And Russia Russia relies far more on China to establish its great power credentials than the other way around. And so Russia is increasingly, I would say, assuming a a supplicant status uh, vis-a-vis China. So that that would be one point I would make. But they definitely are. I, I think they both definitely see the world in increasingly competitive terms. Russia. Russia continues to feel, uh, you know, continues to wax nostalgic for uh, for its imperial days. It continues to believe that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was uh, an irredeemable geopolitical catastrophe. And it is uh, and the evolution of the post-war order, the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the expansion of the European Union continue to. Uh, continue to grade it, to continue to grade Russia and to remind it of what it once was uh, and what it perhaps seeks to become uh, at some point again in the future. So I think that Russia is thinking about how it compete with the United States, not so much in conventional terms, but how it can, how it can be a spoiler. How can it frustrate U.S. foreign policy objectives, whether in Russia's near abroad, whether in the Middle East? And I do think that Russia is also looking to to ramp up, particularly in the realm of information competition. So what Russia demonstrated in 2016, albeit on a small scale, and what Russia has continued to demonstrate is that while it might not be able to compete head to head with the United States, it can certainly it can certainly identify and amplify fault lines, uh, societal fault lines within the United States. Now, uh, that that strategy of amplifying or, or that tactic, I should say, of amplifying existing fault lines in the United States, it's hardly new. And, and Russia has been engaging in that type of tactic for, for decades now. But I do think that I do think that Russia is able to do so more effectively because of social media. And what we've seen again in 2016 and what we've seen subsequently is that using relatively unsophisticated technical operations and using pretty uh, pretty poorly financed efforts that Russia, uh, less in reality, but more in perceptual, less in, less in reality and more in perception, it can have an outsized effect. And I do worry sometimes that in the United States, uh, because we will never know the true impact of Russia's electoral interference in 2016, but I do think that the myth of what Russia achieved in 2016 has has far outstripped the reality of what they likely actually did. And Russia looms very large in the American imagination. And, and that, 
And that place that Russia occupies in, in the American mind, of course, plays to, to, to Russia's advantage. So I, I fully anticipate that as Russia, that, that in years to come, that Russia, in addition to continuing its efforts to frustrate U.S. foreign policy objectives in Russia's near abroad and in the Middle East, I think that it will intensify its disinformation efforts. But it certainly is, it, it does see NATO and the post-war order more generally as an imposition, and it seeks to chip away at the foundations of that that system. Uh, China, absolutely under Xi Jinping, and I think that under Xi Jinping, uh, as opposed to under Hu Jintao, not to say that China under Hu Jintao wasn't competing with the United States, but I think that Xi Jinping has been far more vocal about China's desire to assume, uh, to move closer to center stage, uh, by the middle of this century, it has been far more explicit about engaging in ideological competition and rejecting Western ideological precepts. It certainly has been more vocal about the imperative of engaging in economic competition. I think that China, China had been for some time, particularly since the, you know, since the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis and since the global financial crisis a decade later, uh, China had been gradually weaning itself off of or trying to wean itself off of dependence on the United States. But I think that in light of the U.S. imposition of tariffs, the U.S. steps against uh, companies such as Huawei and CTE, I think that China is accelerating that attack and it wants to rapidly, uh, as rapidly as possible, increase its self-reliance and diversify away from U.S. high-tech inputs. So the United or so China sees itself in in an ideological competition, an economic competition, also a military competition. It wants the uh, it, it wants to uh, make the U.S. Navy feel less comfortable uh, in in the uh, Western Pacific. So they both see the world in increasingly competitive terms. But I, I, I again would emphasize that the strategies that they're using are very different. China, because it is a resurgent power, and granted, even though its its economy is growing at a at a slower pace. Uh, China, nonetheless, is a resurgent uh, economic power that has the wherewithal to cultivate transactional partnerships around the world through a Belt and Road Initiative. Russia doesn't have that economic wherewithal. And so what I envision is that China will continue to be a selective revisionist. Uh, it, it benefits from certain aspects of the post-war order. It does not disclaim the post-war order entirely, whereas the Russians tend to feel far more aggrieved by it. I think the Russia will, that Russia, on the other hand, will continue to play the more of the role of a spoiler rather than the role of a builder. And it will, I think, in particular, seek to intensify its disinformation efforts to amplify fault lines in American society. Uh, you've written about the parallels between the 1930s and today. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Sure. So there are, I would say that there are three parallels, at least when I, when I do a cursory comparison of the, the present period in the 1930s, there at least superficially are, are three comparisons that, uh, that come to mind. Uh, the first is the sort of the woes of democracy. So in the 1930s, in the 1930s, there were, there were very few electoral, and even actually through the 19, uh, uh, 40s, there were very few electoral democracies, and there were a number of author militant authoritarian countries that were riding roughshod uh, over a over a deglobalizing or a deglobalized order. And the Great Depression, in particular, because one, there were very few electoral democracies, and then with the the onset of the Great Depression, uh, the Great Depression gave was kind of a blessing for authoritarian regimes because they were able to make the argument that they had insights into the cultivation of domestic order and domestic prosperity that democracies did not. So one, and today we also, we see you know, concerns about 
democratic stagnation and or even recession. So that's similarity number one. Uh, similarity number two uh, is fears over deglobalization. Uh, in the 1930s, there really wasn't much. And there was the Great Depression, as I just mentioned. There really wasn't much in the way of uh, sort of an international convening economic architecture to help stem the tide of the Great Depression. And and again, you had these militant authoritarian regimes that that operated in this deglobalized space. Today, there are concerns about what impact uh, continuing trade and technological tensions between the United States and China might have on the global economy. There are increasingly pronounced concerns that the United States and China, if not immediately, then that in then in perhaps the medium term or long run, will will take steps to decouple their economies from one another and. Given that economic interdependence between the United States and China has has been a ballast for not only for their relationship, but also for the global economy, there are real concerns. If the United States and China move to decouple and succeed even in partial measure in decoupling, what what impact or impacts might we see on on the global economy and also what impacts might we see on global supply chains? Um, the United States and China, it's important to remember, are bound together not only by a traditional trade in goods and services, but by very, very, but also by very complicated and dense uh, supply chains. And given how many important supply chains traverse both Washington and Beijing, uh, any kind of decoupling, whether partial or full, between the two countries would would be enormously disruptive. And then there tradition, and then there also are additional concerns about the. The erection of barriers, whether physical barriers, i.e. in the form of, of walls or border fences, the the balkanization of cyberspace. So there are a number of concerns about deglobalization. And then the last parallel that that some people posit or 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 discern between contemporary geopolitics in the 1930s is is the return of or the resurgence of great power competition. And we talked a little bit about great power competition as it's understood in the present in the present context. Uh, in the but I think that there's a crucial difference. In the 1930s, there really wasn't a post-war order. Well, obviously there wasn't post-war order of which to speak because <laughs> World War II hadn't happened yet. Um, whereas I would say that today, when we when we worry that the post-war order is under unprecedented, perhaps unprecedented duress from within and without. There is at least a post-war order of which to speak. In the 1930s, there wasn't uh, an order of which to speak. Um, today, yes, it is true that we see a resurgence of strongman rule, and we see uh, we see authoritarianism uh, in uh, kind of in vogue, uh, for lack of a better phrase. But it's important again to take an historical perspective. Um, in in the 1930s and the 1940s, there weren't even, there weren't even 15 electoral democracies. Uh, I think in 1941, if I recall correctly, there were only when when uh, President Rose, Franklin Roosevelt gave a very famous you know, speech warning about the the perils to democracies and the need to the need to provision fuel to keep the the flame of democracy alive. I think in 1941 there were only 11 electoral democracies. Well, today that number is closer to 115. Now. That number is down from 120, maybe a decade or so ago. And so it's concerning that that number has declined. But democracy, to the extent that it is uh, plateauing or even stagnating, it's doing so from a far higher baseline than it was in the 1930s. As for deglobalization, uh, there is an international financial architecture. Uh, there are uh, we're seeing a proliferation of regional and uh, and bilateral trading agreements. Uh, and it's also important to remember that. That today, unlike in the 1930s, we see not only 
we're not only talking about trade in goods and services, but also trade in the digital space. And if you look at global digital flows, those have been surging. So I, I worry I worry less about deglobalization today than I did in the 1930s. And then again, lastly, just to reiterate, with great power competition today, um, China and Russia are. I, w- I look at China and Russia not as posing frontal assaults on the post-war order. I see China as a selective revisionist. I see Russia as a kind of an opportunistic disruptor. Whereas in the 1930s, uh, if I look at or in the 1940s, if I look at Japan and Germany, and then in the Cold War, if I look at the Soviet Union, uh, these were regimes that really were posing frontal assaults on the post-war order, uh, unlike unlike today. And the United States is, whereas in the 1930s, the United States was still pretty parochially, uh, still pretty inwardly focused, didn't really have much in the way of a, a global foreign policy. Today, in the United States, uh, despite the, the present administration's uh, skepticism of international institutions and its skepticism about some of the precepts that have animated U.S. foreign policy over the better part of three quarters of a century, it nonetheless remains the the linchpin of today's post-war order. So, while I understand the the superficial comparisons between the 1930s and today, they I, I think that if you scrutinize them a little bit more rigorously, um, and perhaps I'm being a little naive or a little bit over, overly sanguine, but I, I, I would rather I would rather deal with the challenges that we face today than those that we that we faced in the 1930s. All right, I think that's a good and uh, I think that strikes a hopeful beat for the end of this co- of this conversation, which we don't normally do on this show. Yeah, I wanted to do that because I I realized that I I realized that I had been somewhat downcast for for the better part of our conversation, so I I, I thought that it would be useful to end on a little bit of a hopeful note. Well, we usually end with a really depressing note, so this is kind of a this is a change for us actually. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming on the show and walking us through all of this. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. That's all for this week, War College listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. War College is me, Matthew Galt, Kevin O'Dell, and Derek Gannon. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. Please follow us on Twitter at war underscore college. Like, subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be back next week. Stay safe until then. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.